I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Barrick, Executive Editor of FT Work and Careers, and joining me today is my colleague Helen Barrett, Work and Careers Editor. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech-driven age, and we're talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream. It's ahead of the launch of the 2018 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Prize later this spring. Today, we'll be talking to Leah Weiss, who's teaches at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Her brand new book, How We Work, has the frankly irresistible subtitle, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity and Embrace the Daily Grind. Leah joins us on the line from the US. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And I'm excited to talk to you because you've been practicing Tibetan meditation and compassion practice for decades. I mean, you actually started as a teenager. But how did this personal practice and teaching turn into a book? It was a bit of a meandering path. But along the way, I did a number of long 100-day, six-month meditation retreats alongside um, graduate school, first in social work, and then I got a doctorate in education and Buddhist studies, which then took me to the Compassion Center at Stanford as their director of education, working closely with Chieftain Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, to create and direct the um, teacher training program for our Compassion course. And we've trained folks from around the world in that curriculum. And I also, when I got back to Stanford, had the opportunity to start teaching at the business school. So I've been doing that for about six years. And it's been a wonderful process. And along the way, doing more with organizations who are looking to improve their culture, their teams, and their leadership development. And the book is really out of all of that. Lit. You teach at Stanford, uh, which is the university that gave the business world design thinking, David Kelly's famous theory and interpersonal dynamics, which is also known as the touchy-feely class. And in the book, you talk about how these concepts that have come out of Stanford are similar concepts to something called Dapper Sum. Tell us about why Stanford in particular is so good at adapting these theories and selling them to the rest of the world. I just spent the day at the D School last week. There's a class where they're doing projects in the mindfulness space, and it was such a wonderful opportunity to bring together all of these different aspects of the design thinking process where I had shared with them information about mindfulness, and then out of that, they would develop a plan, and this maps on to the first stage of Dampasum, which is setting an intention, and then they would do experiments and then reflect on them and cycle through again, and this maps on, and this is part of what we were talking about, it maps on so closely 
with the, uh, the design thinking process. And it was great to see them document along the way where they would have an initial concept and go out and do interviews and do um, a prototype and test that and then further develop and iterate again. Because so it means it good the, at the beginning, then, good in the middle and good at the end. Is that right? Yes. And this this is the way that I think we are failing in the translation of mindfulness and compassion practices. You talk a lot in the book about compassion in the workplace and in life and, and how that differs from empathy, which seems a very useful distinction. It wasn't one I'd really thought about before. Could, could you explain how that works in practice? So I think one of the clearest places to really um, get a handle on that is if you look at professional care providers. So for the purpose of this discussion, say we're talking about uh, physicians and nurses. So day in and day out, it's their job to respond to suffering. They are working with people who are in distress. So an empathetic response would indicate that you're feeling with the other person's distress. And in terms of the neuroscience of empathy, what happens is that our brains light up in the same regions, mirroring the experience of the person who is in distress. And if you're, we are not wired to sustain that kind of response over time. So you get what we have now, which is an epidemic of burnout in the healthcare industry. So the thing to change here is that the answer isn't to be a robot and depersonalize, but there's another way of relating with the suffering, of engaging with compassion, where you are connected to the other person, recognizing their humanity, but you're able to respond because you're not in empathetic distress yourself. That's interesting because the idea in the book that you treat people just as you would wish to be treated, what if all human beings are just like us, is actually quite a radical statement for business because most business theories are about beating other people or treating people as commodities or tools to meet corporate goals. And as part of this sort of thing about compassion, you talk about a fully humanised workplace. What would that look like and have you ever seen one? So I think that this is the way of the future. This is going to be, I mean, we know from research that organizations who have the capacity to mobilize compassionately when there are employees who are humans and who inevitably experience sickness, loss of loved ones, all the things that we all have happen in life, the organizations who are able to respond to this demonstrating not only to the person who's suffering, but to all of the people around them who are noticing. When organizations don't take care of their employees, they will not have employees who will be loyal to them. And what we see in the organizations that lack compassion, that mortgage their employees' well-being for short-term gains, their employees leave. Their retention rates cost them, actually, a huge amount of money. So there's this coming together of what makes sense on the human level to be compassionate with the bottom line, which is going to reward you. There's nothing more costly than losing employees again and again, which is what happens in these toxic workplaces. So I think smart organizations are recognizing this. About three weeks ago, I had Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, come into my class at Stanford. And, you know, LinkedIn's a great example of an organization that's looking at this and working to bring compassion in to the hiring processes, to the 
annual performance reviews into the way that they're doing business. So noticing what employees are doing in terms of fostering the development of the people around them. I mean, we have come to the recognition in the field of HR and learning and development that there's a problem that the people who are promoted because they are good at whatever they're good at, they eventually reach a point where their job becomes managing other people, which is a different skill set than what got them there in the first place. So these emotional intelligence or soft skills or compassion-related skills become the currency, um, and they actually are what hiring managers and executives point to as the biggest challenge to find, which makes people who have this combination of technical and human skills, if you have both of these, then you're going to be in huge demand. I've visited a lot of business schools and I've spoken to a lot of business school students and they're an incredibly ambitious and focused group. How do you convince your classes at Stanford that this is important? How receptive are the students to this theory? My class always has waiting lists. I teach multiple sections. Mm. I think that there is a recognition that the human side of work really matters. Gone are the days where people picked a company because they have, you know, a cool ping pong table room and whatever kind of food perks. I think what the millennials are looking for is, you know, based on what we know of them, prioritizing purpose, they want to live lives that are more aligned with what they care about and they want their workplaces to meet them there. So they come into my class trying to, A, develop themselves personally as leaders and they understand the value of these people skills and know that this will translate into more effective work and also better lives. And they're also looking to learn how they can steer their organizations in this direction and they're selecting their jobs based on the organizations that are demonstrating these values. I think that's great for people who are taking those choices themselves, but what about people who are stuck in toxic working environments? What would you say to them to help them to stay sane? How can the mindfulness process work? And can soft skills work wonders? There's examples that I talk about in the book that I think are inspiring for all of us. You know, people who... um, work like Dr. Amy Rizmetsky out of the Yale School of Management, who is an expert in the field of purpose. And she's researched in a number of different jobs, including janitors in hospitals. And she'll find people who express tremendous amount of commitment and purpose and calling. What she talks about is that there are three ways of perceiving our jobs our, as a job, in, in terms of like it's an exchange of time for money as a career, which is more focused on the long term. What I learned today will translate into something I want tomorrow. And then there's this calling idea of my work itself is meaningful. And actually what you find is that there's people in all kinds of positions, including janitors in hospitals, who view their work as a calling, who if you ask them, which Dr. Riznetsky did, about their work, they'll say, I'm an instrumental part of the care team. If I don't do my job well, people will die. I think that we can bring purpose into whatever role that we're in. There's a lot more we can do with our own mindset than we tend to acknowledge 
which then also brings a responsibility that, you know, we can do any job. And there are people, if we watch in the world around us, there are people doing any number of jobs with great dignity and um, who really care about the people that they're interacting with. That's, that's who we should be taking our cue from. Do you think that there's a conflict between what organizations need from their employees and what its workers want? I think that there will always be tensions between the how and the process of work or the paying attention and how to value the various, as Arianna Huffington puts it, the various metrics. So I think increasingly we're living in a time where more and more organizations understand that just the dollars isn't sufficient to understand success. And I think that as we're moving in this direction, when we're thinking about the human element, about environmental externalities, that the discussions become richer and in some ways more complex, but I think they always were complex. We just didn't pay attention to much of what was happening because if you just focus on the short-term financials, you're going to make a different decision than if you're even focusing on what's the financial best practice if I'm looking five years out as opposed to just now. And what if I'm thinking about retaining my workforce instead of making the biggest margin this year. So I think there will always be discussions and strategic questions around this. What would you say, Leah, is the single thing we could all do to make our experience of work better, whatever it is we do? Is there is there a, a silver bullet here? One of the things we know is that the workforce is at an all-time crisis in engagement, that one out of three people actually know how their role in their organization fits in with what the organization is supposed to do. We don't know, so that means two-thirds of people do not know what they're doing and why. So it's very difficult to be engaged. It's very difficult to care. It's very difficult to actually prioritize where we should be spending our time. So I'd say the single most important thing to start with is is understand. Don't be afraid to ask questions and to continue to update your thinking in relation to the people around you as strategy changes over time to understand what is your purpose, what is the value you're bringing, how can you understand that more clearly so you can execute on it more effectively. I am very British, Leah, and I can imagine that lots of other British managers might read your book and think, this is all very well if you're in California, and this is all very Californian, but this doesn't apply to me. How would you respond to that? I would say ignore it as an employer at your own peril because you are going to, no matter how pragmatic you are, retaining your workforce, getting the highest engagement out of them is just good business. So if you're ignoring a method that is shown by research, we know works to increase productivity, to increase efficiency, there's just no logic there. There's nothing to do with California or England or wherever you are in the world. There's just good business sense, which includes that no matter what our work is, there's other people involved in it. And the better we can work with those other people, the more efficient, creative, 
and so on that we're going to be. I can hear the traffic in the background there in New York. So to to wrap up, as an antidote to this rather tech-obsessed and rather fraught world, we're trying to finish every podcast in our series with our what we like to call life-affirming recommendations for what we've read recently. Leah, would you like to go first? So the book I wanted to bring to mind is a classic by Dr. Seuss, The Lorax, which I was just rereading with my three-year-old over and over again. And it is, in my mind, more on point than ever. And I actually just wrote um, an essay about it that... um, comparing what we need to do in terms of understanding the human, the environmental implications of our choices as individuals, as organizations. So the Lorax, that's mine. Helen, I have lined up a book by Deborah Levy called Things I Don't Want to Know, which has not long been published. And it is a riposte to George Orwell's 1946 essay, Why I Write. It's a feminist riposte which looks at the ego that Orwell brings to his, or the egoism he brings to Why I Write, and deconstructs it from a feminist point of view. I'm really looking forward to reading that one. That sounds excellent. And I have just read for review, actually, in the FT, a book called Hotel Silence. It's a novel by an Icelandic author called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Arthur A. for Olofsdottir. And it's about a middle-aged man who finds redemption in a hotel in a war-torn country. And it sounds gloomy, but actually, it's rather wonderful. Well, that's it for us this week. My thanks to Leah Weiss in the United States, to Helen Barrett here in the studio, and to our producer, Patricia Nielsen. Join us next time when we'll be talking about another new book that aims to help us thrive in a tech-dominated age. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.